On this episode, the group discusses the self-titled Genesis album. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair on this episode of Progressive Palaver. I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we continue the Genesis catalog covering the 1983 self-titled album. exciting. This is, a, this is a good one, I think. Um, Alright, so as you were saying, Joe, this is a good one. This is a good one. I mean, I know there are... Everyone has, you know, the opinions on you know, the, the, the overall, shall we say, artistic trajectory of Genesis at this point, and this was um... This was certainly, you know, it was their most successful at the time it came out, right? And so in some ways it can be, again, regarded as some sort of of shift towards um, the the commercial side. This was after um, at least one or maybe two of Phil's records, I think. Hello, I Must Be Going was probably out at this point. It gets lumped in, I think, with with Invisible Touch. And it can sometimes be mm. disregarded. As, mm. as is often the case when you his- look back historically at something that was very successful, right? Mm. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of what happens. But I think, you know, I just think this is a really, really solid album with with a lot to really offer. And while it is, again, perhaps more accessible, there's more to it than just that. And and I think even some of the things that wound up being commercially successful or accepted, maybe even in the live environment, were, were things that were, I don't know, admirable, worthwhile, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they weren't fluff. We agreed that... Um Abacab was sparse and abstract. So in the context of Abacab, you're finding more context and substance in Genesis. Yeah, and, and Rutherford talks about this in his book. You know, like I said, the, the last episode when we, we talked about the the interviews that Genesis did on Abacab and, and I, you know, made mention of the fact that they were they were pretty staunchly defending that album in a lot of ways. But in his book, Rutherford ad- admits that, you know, maybe the band had gone perhaps too far in one direction in trying to change things. Thank and, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and they they ended up sort of, you know, reaching a, a, a new equilibrium with, with Genesis. And I think... I don't know that I've heard Phil say it, but I believe I have read and, and heard both 
Mike and Tony say that Genesis is one of, if not their most favorite album. I think there's there, there there's so much that goes into this, right? And and in the interview, Ken, that that you had mentioned, they make it a point to emphasize that this was the first album that they did where it was written and recorded at the farm. You know, at, on Abacab, they sort of created this new way of of writing songs together, but they did it somewhere else, and then they recorded it um, at the farm. We mentioned in the episode last time that um, apparently there are, and, and actually it comes out from the, the home video that, that Phil made of the recording of this album, whereby the farm has a certain sonic quality to it. So now you have the band writing and recording in that that same environment. And mm-hmm. when when these guys talk about this this sort of this this method of songwriting, you can see that they they like it. Um they get kind of excited by the idea of of the three of them coming together and creating something out of nothing. And you know, even Phil gets excited by it. And and you know, quite frankly, in a lot of the interviews that I've seen Phil do, Phil can be a bit of a dour kind of guy, you know, but, <laughs> but he seems, well, and, it, and that's somewhat at odds with his sort of, you know, happy frontman persona, but, but that's what I get from it. Um, watch the, the documentary on the 2007 reunion tour. Uh, Phil doesn't seem very happy about the whole thing. Um, he was a grumpy old man. But but when he talks about the the songwriting in the interview for this album, he 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 lights up. He likes it. Um, mm-hmm. Rutherford speaks to the idea of the excitement of going in and not not knowing what's going to come out and not having anything when you go into those sessions. Um, it's it's very very cool, and, and so it in some ways it establishes who Genesis are and who they want to be. I think another thing that comes out of this that maybe we we wouldn't have picked up on when we talked about Abacab, but going forward, it seems to hold true. I had made the, the comment on, and then there were three, and Duke, that those albums in some degree were Mike Rutherford trying to play guitar in the Genesis manner that had been established before. I think on Abacab and certainly here, we start to see the emergence of who Mike Rutherford is as a guitarist, which is another interesting aspect to all of this. Oh, holy mother of bass lines. We'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) I got to go back to the farm. Um, The farm is iconic. It it gets a mention in all the wikis and gets mentioned in in the book ad nauseum. It's really late in the Genesis catalog that the farm comes along. Yeah. And and we really Mm. only have um, three big recordings out at the farm. Or, or maybe four. You, you can tell me how that works out. Yeah, I, th- I think there are, there are three Genesis recordings, but one or two of Phil's albums were recorded there. Um, a couple of Mike and Mechanics albums are recorded there. True. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But but you're right. It, it really you, you have in your head that the farm is this you know massive part of the whole thing, but it's it's only a very small portion. 
Yeah, and you'd think that they probably could have pulled off something similar without the farm. They were just maybe, I guess it's the charm and the comfort level that we're dialing into. Yeah, and, and I I would suspect that's probably it. Like, this is their space. And I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see the video of, of the making of this album. The farm is nothing like what I had in my head. It is It is not an opulent sort of environment in any way shape or form it you know when they when they do refer to it as a cow shed i mean it literally is what it is and it's it's very <laughs> it's very cozy yeah. um you know it's but but it seems it seemed to have worked for them i was very sad by the way when i was doing some some background research on the farm to see that it had um you know they declared it bankrupt several years ago and so apparently the farm is no more. Ah. No, studios need to stay up to date and they need to stay active. I imagine that there are parallels between the farm and Rocket Records where uh, apparently the Brits don't need a lot of space. You know, here we're the nation of strip malls and consuming space and the Brits can make magic in a relatively uh, small proximity. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's very interesting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's 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 wonderful. Yeah, I watched a little bit of that video and I unfortunately I didn't really get a chance to watch it all. And I was struck by the same thing that you mentioned, Joe, but also I was struck with uh, a couple of things, but the, probably the biggest thing that hit me was when they were sort of jamming on Home by the Sea. And Phil is just kind of dancing around and he's humming along and singing like scatting ideas like you had talked about before. And all I could think of was like, how the fuck did this ever become Home by the Sea right? the way we know it? <laughs> I thought the same thing. It is, it, you know, one of the things that struck me and, and was we, we had heard about this method of songwriting. There isn't a lot of of that actually shown in the video and apparently there's a there's a, a more formal documentary that was made for invisible touch where again they speak to the fact that when the cameras are on they kind of clammed up and so a mm -hmm. lot of that creativity wasn't necessarily captured on camera but mm -hmm. seeing what you phil's video does provide you a, a, an interesting glimpse into how that works and and i was thinking the same thing like how did how do they get to this? I do think ultimately, though, it it may explain some things that seems to drive the palaver crazy. One being this fixation on the word either night or tonight. I think it's something that Phil likes to sing. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> and leftover it, scat stuff. It, from it, the, yeah, from the it, early it days. Just, you know, <laughs> it, it just kind of drops in there, and there's something about the way that sounds. I think that that is is the way it works, and so yeah, it. I found it to be fascinating watching that. You know, up till this point in time in my life, like I had been aware of Genesis based on what we've talked about before. My sister's playing Misunderstanding. Hearing Abacab on the radio, Man on the Corner on MTV. And there was a day that just sort of a memory burned into my brain. Sitting in the lobby of CB West, probably in 10th grade. Definitely in 10th grade. And 
in the morning as a young sort of impressionable 10th grader. And I noted that Matt Honish, Rich Petrus, Rob Ronke, and a couple of others were like walking through the halls with their Genesis concert shirts on. <laughs> and <laughs> I think Mama was written on the back of it. And at that point in time, I was, I was thinking Genesis, you know, um, that's all. And maybe even a illegal alien there. And, and, you know, anything I had heard before. And I was like, wow, those are like the cool guitar guys. <laughs> and they have, <laughs> and they went to see Genesis last night. What? <laughs> and uh, so I knew at this point something was, was up with with genesis and i honestly don't think i came around the whole way until ken dragged me to see the concert the first time and then i started listening but that was the first moment that i realized okay there must be something to this band that i'm not getting uh from that's all and illegal alien before we get too deep into it why don't we talk about some of the prog context of of 1983, because I think it's going to play a part in all of this in, in understanding what we're what we're talking about. Ken, Joe, yes, Joe. Thank you for asking. If I could find Prague context, I would give it to you. <laughs> but this is this is the anti-Prague, right? <laughs> well, for the most part, something happened. Something some, happened on the way to Genesis. Some, well, yes, something happened in 1983. Well, in it, 19, uh, maybe perhaps <laughs> it, 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 well, all right, I'll just let you go, Ken. Never mind. It's go October ahead. of 1983 and September of 82 was the previous Abacab album. And, and very shortly after that, in June, you had three sides live. And according to the wikis, they did a two month tour to support three sides live in both the U.S. and Europe, which is amazing. At this point, they're so popular they're spending less time on the road, doing less shows, but probably making three times as much money. So it's just fascinating seeing how busy they were in that period with two studio albums and a live album in between. Joe, did you know that um, in March 1982, Asia released Asia? I think I heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Peter Gabriel did uh, Security. In uh, September of 82. Yeah, yeah. I think I heard about that, too. That's kind of important. So we've got the whole San Jacinto effect going on. Uh, September of 1982, Rush does Signals, which isn't necessarily that prog. No, it's not, which is interesting, um, given the conversation we've had about that. Okay. Uh, let me see here. Super Tramp. Famous last words. Now hey. we jump. Uh, yeah. Well, so, you know, one of the things I was going to say before was that, you know, when you consider that in 1982, Asia came out with their self-titled album, and everyone basically admits that Asia was a pre predetermined, pre-decided, pre... what's the word I'm looking Packaged. for? Pre Packaged? Pre-packaged group of prog rock stars with the sole purpose of making radio hits, Right. Right. So they that so that's kind of if they they sort of tip the, the the scales over, not suggesting that any of these other folks were purposely going commercial, but there was definitely this movement 
and in the you know and some of the the biggest names in prog rock were basically saying yes we're trying to get on the radio like we're reacting to whatever's happening in the music industry and it's okay to be played on the radio in fact we're going to beef up the keyboards even more and um and continue on that path so it just seems kind of like that's what's happening and and i don't i can't remember when the wall came out but the wall had already been out and you know you've got songs like we don't need no education i guess that's actually another brick in the wall part two or something like that and comfortably numb you know these are bona fide classic prog rock songs that are very packaged nicely for the radio and and you know those are the songs that everyone even if they don't know any pink floyd those are the songs that they know so we've sort of entered this age where um it's it's okay everyone seems to be okay with it even though as you said earlier joe there's plenty of criticism and rage um night i'm glad you said pink floyd uh the final cut came out in march 83 and not now john was uh not necessarily prog (laughs) these guys the the these real freaks tried to bring back genesis in march 1983 (laughs) and they called their product script for a gesture's tear what's that all about <laughs> yeah, it was like some some ideas yeah, are worth revisiting. Let's turn the clock back. <laughs> For more on that, go back to episode one of Progressive Palaver. <laughs> we really so can I'm uh, did I miss it? There, there's something important that happens at the end of 1983, though. And wait, 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 1982 or no, 1983? But but I didn't. I'm I'm going in chronological order. Oh, okay, different. so we just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're okay. in March '83, Joe. I, I didn't even get to tell you about Alpha. Okay? Alpha. So oh. that was in July '83. Boy, so uh, they were. They yeah, were fast. Uh, Asia released two albums prior to the Genesis album. Um, Alpha okay. had "Don't Cry," which was which was one of my favorite songs in the '80s. Okay. All right. Um, so. Genesis would have been somehow influenced by the things we just spoke of. Uh, but um, uh, very shortly, with, within a month and a couple of days of the Genesis album coming out, we, we were blindsided by 90215. 90125. Not 90124 or 90126. <laughs> but 90125. So... So and and that's really what I wanted to get to, right? Because you've got, you know, with with the final cut, with nine hundred one two five, with Asia, and with Signals, you have sort of the some of the cornerstones of of progressive rock releasing these albums that started to shift the spectrum a little bit, and we've already talked about, um, you know, some of these, and and with even on. All jokes aside, you know, with with the introduction of Marillion, right, you now have what what I refer to, whether seriously or not, as as second generation prog coming in. Bands that have now grown up on the Yeses and the Pink Floyds and the King Crimsons and the Genesises of the world. Some Just call started it here. neo-progressive rock. Yes, some do. And I think Tom in the group text made the, the comment that 
the Genesis album is like the 90125 album for Yes. So, and and I and it's funny because as soon as he said it, I was like, he is so right, right? Genesis is to Genesis what 90125 is to Yes. Yeah, and, and it, the the, the parallels and they came out within a month of one another. Yeah, that's it's crazy. Well, okay, let's talk about. I think the the short song length is a product of MTV because you, you got to have a video, otherwise you don't get a record contract, and the video has to fit a certain thing. So, Shock the Monkey was probably my favorite video uh, that came out of this period. Now, you guys may like the the crazy. Uh, uh, what was that with 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 yes and owner of a lonely heart with the eagle and the weird dude yeah, walking yeah. around? Yeah, yeah, I did enjoy that. I thought shock the monkey, and in some ways, I still do think it's very weird. Overall, I love the song, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's and- part about shock the monkey. I want to say shock the monkey. I could be wrong about this, but when I first saw Peter Gabriel live, he played that song pretty early in the set. David Rhodes and Tony Levin were wearing wigs, and at the very end, he took their wigs off mm-hmm. and revealed them to be bald men. Cool. It was, cool. It was fun. Um, I, I want to say that Abacab did not have memorable videos. Do you guys even recall? Oh, my gosh. The video for... Um, uh, the bass, the righteous bass song, track two, uh, is no reply, a, no reply at all. Is a terrific, which I always, until I saw this video, I always thought was the farm. They're all in this beautiful studio playing along, <laughs> and, and I, every time I heard about the farm, that was the vision I had, and um, and sure enough, it wasn't like that at all. And um, and they had a great live video for Man on the Corner. But you're right, they didn't have... That was still the early days of MTV. So I think it was just, hey, guys, get in the studio and play. We'll film it. Or they took some live footage. It seems like 82 was kind of like average videos. And then, damn, 83, they all stepped at their game immediately. Yeah, yeah for sure. And uh, yeah, these were... Yes, these were some of the guys that were um, at the forefront of it. Yeah, I found I think, you know, in the in that parallel between 90125 and Genesis, the Genesis transformation is so much more genuine because it's the same three guys. You know, they they had plateaued at some point. We we all know how we feel about Duke. And they needed a change and they went through this sort of transitional album of Abacab and Man, when they when they get to Genesis, they they really they blossom into what the future of Genesis is going to be. It's 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 the new version of Genesis. It's a perfect album to give it their self titled album, and it it rivals nine hundred one two five in that that manner. Sincerity, it, yeah. You're, just, you're you're saying Trevor Horn is is the opposite is opposite of sincerity. That's that's what I'm catching here, buddy. I'm not really saying that's the opposite of sincerity. It's just that. <laughs> You know, nine hundred one two five. It's it's you know it's a different main songwriter. It's a whole different kind of. They started as a different band. They just kind of turned it into yes later. So there's just there's this there's somewhat of a lack of, you know, it's just less genuine than Genesis, who really dug through this sort of transitional phase and blossomed into you know what's what's becoming the new the new way for them. Although I will say Genesis is, you know, and this is probably obvious too, it's a bit darker than something like 90125, which I think is a little bit more fresh. And production-wise, it's 
I think 90125 is a bit better, but Genesis and the Genesis album is to me a bit more dark, but I think it's more genuine in, in its representation of the band. And I don't think it matters. I'm just, that's just cool. an observation. With that context, let's, uh, let's maybe go through the particulars of the album and then we can dive into it properly. So, as we mentioned, the self-titled Genesis album was released in October of 1983, produced by Genesis and Hugh Padgham, released on the label's Charisma Virgin. Band lineup is Tony Banks on keyboards and backing vocals, Mike Rutherford on guitars, bass guitars, and backing vocals, and Phil Collins on drums, percussion, and lead vocals. Track listing is Mama, That's All, Home by the Sea, Second Home by the Sea, Illegal Alien, Taking It All Too Hard, Just a Job to Do, Silver Rainbow, and finishing up with It's Going to Get Better. Genesis is the 12th studio album by the English rock band Genesis, released on 3rd October 1983 by Charisma and Virgin Records. Following the band's tour in support of their 1982 live album Three Sides Live, Genesis took an eight-month break before they regrouped in the spring of 1983 to record a new studio album, their first since Abacab in 1981. It marks their first written, recorded, and mixed in its entirety at their own recording facility named The Farm. Its title derives from the fact that the album was written collectively. According to AllMusic, the album established that Genesis were now, quote, or were, quote, now primarily a pop band, end quote, although, quote, Art rock functions as coloring. We can talk about that if we want to. Genesis was a commercial success upon its release. The album reached number one on the UK Albums Chart and number nine on the US Billboard 200, where it sold over four million copies. Five singles were released between 1983 and 1984, with Mama being the band's highest charting single in the UK at number four. Genesis was remastered in 2007, with new stereo and 5.1 surround sound mixes as part of the Genesis 1983 to 1998 box set. I'm really focusing on this 1983, so we would have all been turning 13 about then, and definitely in junior high school. So, Paul, I don't know when you recall seeing the guys older than us wearing Genesis shirts, but when this actually came out, we were solidly in junior high. It's true, but the tour probably, I don't want to find out when the tour was. Joe, what grade did you show up in? I showed up in Unami in eighth grade. Hmm. Okay. So it would have been probably, what, a year or two after this? Right. And, and, and it took a, a while for us to uh, suss each other out and size up, you know, musical tastes and whatnot. Right. And, you know, Yeah. You were, the, you were that guy who was into the tubes, man. <laughs> yeah. What the hell is this guy's problem? <laughs> oh, shit. I had a Van Halen three-quarter sleeve shirt. I know that. I remember one of the – it was shortly after I met you guys was when you and Dan went to see the 1984 show. And you came into school the next day wearing your shirts. And I was just amazed that you guys got to go to concerts like that. Uh, took some doing. <laughs> dad was right outside the arena. Oh, the wait, mama. no, no, no. He was in the arena. Yeah, 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 yeah. Went, went with dad. Yep. The Mama Tour hit Philadelphia's The Spectrum, November 25th, 26th, and 27th. 
1983. And it looks like they grossed a total of $624,000 on that show. Three sellout nights. So yeah, that you're right, Ken. That would basically discount the memory that I had there. But I have pretty strong memory about that. <laughs> Don't know what happened to them. Maybe there was some other kind of... Maybe they all just decided to wear their mama short tour shirts a couple of years later. Just to screw with me. <laughs> or maybe... Maybe they bought retro shirts on the uh, first Invisible Touch tour. Who knows? Possibly. Now, well, I, all right. So, sorry, but 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 I, I swear, at one of our dances, the the cover band did "Home by the Sea," and we dropped our jaws to the gymnasium floor. I, I would believe that. So, th- there are there's. There's one thing I'd, I'd want to make. There's another comment that I'm actually going to hold until next episode. That's sort of the greater musical context. But so this is the first album where Phil uses Simmons drums. And it seems like he uses them fairly extensively, if not exclusively on here. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Paul's reaction is going to be contrary to what I'm about to say in that, <laughs> in that I feel, you know, we, we've, we've already come across the Simmons drums um, with yes. Um, I'm sorry, with rush. Uh, we talked about it with uh, Van Halen did it or the, the other two big ones. I think in my opinion, I think Phil is the best application of those drums <clears throat> Oh, yes, with ABWH and fucking Bill Bruford and that snare sound. Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty much when the, the whole thing came crashing down. <laughs> but <laughs> blame it on the kimono. <laughs> yeah, not so sure about that. So uh, I, I think that, that Phil's use of them is is pretty good you can you can tell that they're electronic drums um but you know i i think the way he uses them it's not it's not so in your face as what what bill did um and i just i i like it i think it it kind of fits in with what they're doing it it you know we i had made the the comment a few episodes ago when you guys kind of scoffed at me about um, Genesis being early adopters in terms of, of certain technology. And I think the Simmons drums is one aspect. I think the the increased use of the drum machine at this point. I mean, these guys had sort of set set the standard for how to integrate drum machines and live drumming into into uh to songwriting like this and by this point it's like second nature to them and and they've all talked about it they actually were using the drum the drum machines as sort of a a a basis for to allow phil to do this you know this vocal um improvising thing that he was doing and and so that's kind of cool and tony in the interview talks about the the advent of the um sampling synthesizer and all of the things that that sort of opened up and and he's got a great story uh that we'll get to later on where you know he starts playing something and gets sort of an unexpected outcome which ultimately has a positive impact on Mm -hmm. you know at least part of the song so you know they clearly weren't 
afraid to to try things. And again, I think that's admirable. Score. Joseph, I agree. Yeah, I agree with what you said, Joe. I think my reaction um, stems really just, I think, Silver Rainbow for me, that song. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but like when the drums, when the drums kick in on that, I'm just like, oh, Jesus, put those away. You know, like <laughs> it's just like there's just the one song to just like throw me over the edge. But otherwise, yeah, you're, you're right on. How about the album cover of, uh, of Genesis? I didn't see much on the album cover as far as information. Well, what information is there? I mean, well, there's got to be some sort of meaning behind all the puzzle pieces. I, I don't think there is. I, I, They're like the pieces that go into that little ball when you're a kid, right? The star and the and the yeah, and exactly. the trapezoid. Mm -hmm. Yep. The blue and, and the, the red ball. Yeah, the the the, the Tupperware ball. Yeah, no, Tupperware. <laughs> yeah, it's like the blue and red, and you pull it apart, and all the pieces would come out, and then you could stuff them all back in. Yep. Yeah, I just don't, you know, I don't know if there's, I didn't see anything online about what, you know, if there was any significance about it. Yeah, I, I, I have never come across anything to that effect. What I get from the album cover is, it's, it's just, it's yellow, right? And so when I think of this album, all I think of is yellow. I also, you know, whatever. It, I could, I could attach all sorts of meaning about you know, different pieces and, and how it all fits together within a, a single whole, but you know, whatever. I think it's just bullshit. I, I, I don't think there's any significance to this cover at all. I mean, all of the stories around Genesis covers, certainly after Peter left, well, after, I guess a trick of the tale was the last one that sort of had very dis definite meaning, right? tied yeah. to all the different songs. Everything else has been very, you know, obtuse. Um, I guess Duke did. I, I don't know. Well, well and then there were three was supposed to have meaning, but it, it, it failed me. It just didn't work. Yeah, maybe after then they just figured, we'll just take whatever, whatever's, you know, because even though Duke had some meaning behind it, it, it doesn't seem like it was planned out. It seemed like yeah. they saw it and they were like, hey, that'll work. Let's use that. So the... Um, the the one thing that I like about it, I don't know if you guys have seen the um, the the jacket, the sleeve no. inside the LP. So I got all these great little pictures on there, in and around the um, the lyrics. It's a lot of yellow, man. It is. That's why I said the whole yeah. thing is yellow. <laughs> the picture for "Home by the Sea" is just so appropriately spooky. Mm, yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's cool. Just enough out of focus that that house could be something horribly dangerous. Yeah, and and you know the the way they found a house like right on the perfectly shaped shoreline that sort of you know loops away from you and the hill with the trees, everything about it is just it's perfect. I love it. I suppose we could have been at, in junior high when I saw those guys with the shirts on, and maybe I bet you I were. Just, maybe I just transported myself to yeah. Uh, yeah, I bet you were. Yeah, uh, no, I you know I fully expected. All I'll say generally before we get into it, I fully expected to listen to this album and and come back and report to both of you that I did not think it stood the test of time, and I am happy to report that that is not the case. I found myself every time I listen to it liking it more and more. 
Well, the one that stands the test of time is coming up next, but we'll we'll refrain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a staunch defender. So so yeah, but um, uh, I really really loved Mama um, on the Invisible Touch tour. They opened with that, and oh, I was yes. sold, and I've loved it ever since. On this go round, I suppose firing it up wasn't quite as amazing as I thought, but I certainly didn't turn the volume down. I certainly didn't fast forward. I was pretty much in my zone. It's as awesome as of an opening track and an underdog hit that you could ever ask for. Hmm. Yeah, listen, just the fact that they released this song as a single tells you they 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 were not in the frame mi- frame of mind of like being a pop music machine, right? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this this song has uh, it reaches Peter Gabriel levels of creepy. Mm. You know, I I love it. I think it's spectacular because I'm into the dark and creepy. But it's you know it, it it's not. It certainly is not something that's crafted to be a pop song. Right. Yeah, and, and so we have the same conversation that we keep having with these later albums. The albums in general seem to be remembered for one or two or three, you know, songs that are, you know, maybe lighter or more accessible than the rest, but there's still some some really adventurous and you know, shall we say, proggy moments, um, you know, certainly within the context of what was going on at the time. And, and you know, so I, that's why I, I don't necessarily, I, that's why I bristle at the idea of, you know, oh, well, Genesis were just a bunch of sellouts. I, I don't, I don't think that was their intention. I think when you listen to Phil's But Seriously or, you know, either of the Mike and the Mechanics albums or Phil's um, No Jacket Required. I mean, those were designed to be commercial. Yes. Uh, you and know. Here's, here's the thing. Sorry to cut you off. No, no. But here's the, what happened over this. And I think several episodes again ago, I made the, the, the reference to, you know, that Phil Collins started as a singer and learned how to become a screamer. Mm-hmm. And, he has this amazing high register where he's sort of sort of yelling and screaming, um, but but doing it on pitch and singing complicated vocal lines and melodies while he's doing it. But it seemed like almost, you know, when he did his solo album and then they did Abacab and then back to his solo album, it was in those albums where he really mastered that mm-hmm. and they, they seemed to master how to record it. And and out of context, knowing all like knowing all of that music, it's easy to just kind of lop in the Genesis album to that to those that that type of like oh this is just a Phil Collins tune because his voice has become so singular in the way that it is, and and I think it you know in the long run. It, it almost detracts from the quality of the album and, and the proggy elements that you're talking about, Joe, because you just hear that and you're thinking of, you know, whatever song you want, you know, groovy kind of love or, um, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, she's an easy lover or whatever. Right. 
all great songs in their own right. Although I don't know if I go on record saying Groovy kind of loves a great song, but but you know, in the pop world, they have their place. But they sort of infect this in your memory because of just the sound. I don't know. But when you listen to the album sort of isolated and think of it for what it really is, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, at this point, he's only got two solo albums. So you must be talking about Hello, I Must Be Going. Yes, which Hello, I Must Be Going is a really good album. And it's, it's kind of creepy, too. I, you know, I guess maybe it was, maybe it was working with Peter. I don't know, <laughs> but hello, it must be going has some, some really, really great atmosphere overall. I think it's you, Pajam. It's, I don't care anymore. It's dark. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think all of this, this, um, goes, carries through and I think it, it presents itself. So uh, for me, I, I think this is great. One of the interesting things about mama that I really, really liked that I came across while doing this. And again, I started, you know, I was doing my research and I, I kind of had some extra time on my hands and I started to go a little bit far afield. And I wound up watching the, the Genesis on interviews for the rest of the catalog at this point. And Ray Wilson has tremendous things to say about Phil's vocal delivery on Mama. He mm-hmm. is, you know, because he, he was talking about one of the songs on Calling All Stations that he had to really sort of dig in to to find that delivery. And he likened it to what Phil did um, here on Mama. And he, you know, he, he suggested that there was something s- special about this particular performance. And... You know, I, I don't know how much he knows about it, but he presented it like, you know, in his mind, Phil had to reach some very special places in order to to deliver this. And it was just, it was cool to hear him talk about it. It was also early in the process. So he had some spontaneity in there, from what I understand. That harkens back to what we said about, oh, they're at the farm. It's their space and they yeah. can finally record now and they're capturing what might have been previously lost. Yeah. Just trying to sing, you know, some of the lines from mama, you know, particularly when, you know, he starts singing in the upper register later in the song, like singing (laughs) the melodies, singing the melodies is difficult. It's difficult to actually hit the notes the way he does. It takes an incredible amount of effort to do it. And, and he's doing it in this like forward nasal gravelly sort of and it's it's exceptional (laughs) it is exceptional (laughs) that he does it and i mean it's really a you know we've become so used to it and home by the sea is exactly the same way i mean he's doing it incredibly controlled and yeah it's just it's a great performance for sure so you know joe you you were saying you know the idea about you know they were sort of the the masters of the 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 integration of electric drums and the drum programming and everything when those delicious gated snare drums come in in mama i mean it just oh, it right? really it sets the tone for the whole album it's, it's freaking huge that's wonderful you know everybody wants to talk about the fact that okay there's a lind drum through a mesa boogie and it's distorting and the amp is bouncing on the floor and they cover that in the video um what, what what I focus on is that it's kind of like 
two kicks and a snare and the and the two kicks are different pitches and that that is what draws me into it it's so yeah. creepy it's like the high low snare high low snare and that that's the iconic riff for me it's really creepy and really great yeah that- yeah and there's something about the 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 steady like hi-hat rhythm and the little the the little wood sticks that keep clicking mm-hmm. that um and i guess through the amp and all the effects it, it it gives it a very like almost like chains for some reason for me it's just the whole feel of it is haunting and wonderful well yeah and, and that's you know that's one of the things that genesis is so good about is creating an atmosphere right and you know i yeah i love it hmm. tony said they knew it would be good they didn't know what it would be but either direction they went, they felt like it was going to be good. Yep. Hmm. And they were right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love Mama. I think it's just such a, such a tremendous track. It's so, unex- even for Genesis, I think it's unexpected. And it's very powerful. And you, you, can, you can interpret it and experience it in any number of different ways, depending on where your brain is at the time. Absolutely spectacular. So we we had some uh, we had some conversation about that's all on the um, on, on the uh, the group chat today. So you know, as as proggy and and atmospheric and wonderful as Mama is, that's all is extraordinarily stepped back and simple. Is that what I'm going for here? I mean, it, it just, it's, it has this, Tony's hmm. piano line is, is just beautiful, but everything else about it is so relaxed. Okay. Beatle-esque. Well, yeah. And uh, thank you. Yeah. What, what does, what does Mike call well, it? A beatle yeah. chug tune, I believe is the phrase he uses. Dum, bum, 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 bum. I, sk- I, you, I could I could see Mike swinging yeah. back and forth. I can just see Mike Rutherford grabbing his German beer mug and swinging <laughs> it back and forth to further illustrate the beat of that's all. It, it, there there is something chuggy about it. I, while, I understand while, exactly what he's saying while eating his sausages. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no doubt. So that's one of the things. If you watch the the making of video. These guys eat a lot of freaking sausage sandwiches. It's amazing. Everyone's <laughs> someone's always bringing sandwiches into the studio. I like it. The cool thing about the and I think the Ringo-ish part of the drums, I think the Ringo reference is right on with some of the some of the fills. The the cool thing about the drums is like because you're right, Ken. It's got that sort of like you know if you take your mug of beer or ale and. You just kind of like do 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 yeah do do yeah. do yeah. right, but then yeah. the whole time there's the uh, the hi hats going do 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 do. It's accenting on Beautiful the back beat. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. It's a really yeah. cool uh, setup. And um, this song is not Mama, but boy, is it good. And you know what? It's not Genesis whimsy because it could have done that very easily, but the words are sincere. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and I think I think the lyrics on this are actually very very strong. It, it, sincere, I think, is exactly the word that 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 covers this. Ken, yeah. <laughs> and Paul, if you had trouble singing "Mama," 
And if it really like, you know, yeah. just bust, busted your ass to squeeze out a few notes, that's all. It's got a pleasant vocal line that most of us can can sing right along with Phil, you know? It we, is. It is. Yeah, it's quite pleasant. You're right. Yeah. I like yeah. It. I like it. <laughs> the, um, I love, I think always my favorite part of this song ever since, you know, the, the 80s has been the the Mike Rutherford guitar solo, um, you know, towards the end. And it's he's just got that really tight sort of compressed like yeah. overly compressed single yeah. coiled sort of strat sound that and, and he's just he's just playing such great notes and he's he's you know he's kind of chugging along on it and playing you know um double stops and, and kind of things and i love it and and i laugh so hard watching the video because he's sitting there messing around with all of his gear and he's sitting in a chair and he's got like a tower of effects and things behind him. <laughs> and I'm thinking he needed all that just to get that clear little like, you know, chinky sound for the. For the- <laughs> I could have done that with an old DOD comp. <laughs> oh, my God. But yeah, yeah. He, he's so purely into melody at this point. And. I doubt he was ever trying to be Steve Hackett, but if so, that influence is gone and it's just uh, uh, pure expression. I like it. Mm. Rock. I, yeah. You, you know, that, that, that got a lot more love than I thought it was going to. That's great. So I, well, I, how about the breakdown? You know, you said, I love you more than I wanted to. Oh, I love trying that. Yeah. yeah. That and really makes it. It, it really does. Cause it, it just, it kind of, all of the great things you guys are describing, right? But the song could be monotonous if it didn't have those breakdown moments in there. And 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 the way that Phil is able to vocally get back into the, the, the groove, so to speak, is, I think, wonderful. Yeah. It's four minutes and 22 seconds. And w- without, yeah, that contrast, it probably would have been a 205 or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what makes me think, you know, we talk about the, the, you know, this is the 90125 of Genesis or, you know, this reminds me like where they are with this album sort of reminds me of how we talked about where Rush was when they did Power Windows, right? They had all of this elegance from everything they had done before that they were infusing into the songs and they were doing the littlest things that made such huge differences in the way the song was brought across. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about with that, with that bridge there. It's, it's, it's just great. Did this song make it into the live? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was great live. Which gets us into the timpanis Mm. and, Oh God. (laughs) Bodo, boom, Bodo, boom. I, I believe I've made mention before that Home by the Sea and by extension Second Home by the Sea, were, you know, it was one of my my magic moments with Genesis. There's something about these songs that just connect with me. Mm-hmm. Looking at them sort of backwards and, and the way that um, in the interview, Tony speaks to 
second home by the sea really arising from one of their jam sessions. And as he said, recording, you know, literally hours of them jamming on a groove and going back and listening to the tapes and putting the best bits together. And if that's where it started then, and, and again, Paul, you mentioned sort of uh, earlier on the episode when, when they're, the clip in the video of, of them sort of jamming on this and Phil doing his little scatting bit. And you wonder how the hell they ever got from there to this masterpiece of a song. Because as great as the jam is in Second Home by the Sea, here again, the first part, Home by the Sea, is so wonderfully atmospheric. And, you know, there are a couple of, there are a few things in the world that really get get me going. Um, rockets and ghosts and pirates. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it, it, and and I think this is such a lovely, and I I say lovely, sort of cautiously. This is this is such a well told ghost story, right? Because even before I I puzzled through the lyrics, you kind of get the idea that something spooky is going on. It just sounds and feels spooky. Mm. Um, so, you, so you get that first part, which is really, really cool. And I absolutely love just Phil's vocal line here is so interesting to me. So it's it's not, you have this, this situation where you've got You've got great music, you've got a great vocal line, you have very compelling lyrics that just takes you through all of this, and then it leads you right into the just a killer freaking instrumental jam. And then at mm. the end, you know, they they do one of my favorite gags, which is the you know, the lyric reprise. And, and they they switch it up a little bit. It's not quite the dramatic impact that you get in in Duke's travels, but it's still very very. Cool. Oh, it's pretty close, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I may not have caught it so deeply just from FM radio alone. I think it's the fact that it ended up, you know, being played at a, a school dance. That was like, oh my god, just being in that volume with that impact and i never knew what it was about until maybe recently and i never really cared it was just one of those vocal lines that kind of just supports itself yeah i never picked up on the fact that the you know that there was a robber here shimming up the walls in the dark of night just never really made that much sense to me you know something is going on with 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 the story there's a, just a level of kind of pain yeah. and constriction that he uh, conveys in that vocal line mm. and, and when did I'm you latch on paul well i'm with you on on all of that i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of skip to the the second home by the sea part mostly for me because uh, I, I think it's a the classic, if there is such a thing, the classic moment of the Simmons drums sort of dominating, right? Second Home by the Sea starts, you know, they are front and center. There is no hiding. It's not a complimentary thing. It is right in your face. 
Yeah. And and it works great. I love it. And I but the thing listening through this go around, like at the big parts of Second Home by the Sea, where it's the dun 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 right with the, the keyboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going, the happy part. I would have told you, I would have bet you all the money in my wallet, which isn't really that much, but every cent that I have on my person. <laughs> that they were these giant Tony Banks keyboard sounds that were just blowing you away. And it's not. It's just delicious Mike Rutherford, single-tone, distorted, heavy guitar chords. And I was like, I was kind of blown away by that, listening to it. And, um, and I was thinking, wow, this is the kind of shit that I really get off on in like we can't dance that album he he does some of right. the some of the, those same types of of guitar tones and so that's what kind of really blew me away this go around by this and this was one where you know i think like you mentioned joe where he talks about uh, where we you were talking about all that jamming at the beginning and how they're formulating these songs and maybe that's where we're getting some of the repetition of lyrics and songs that we like i think i get i get that with the sit down because you know, of all phrases to sort of harp on, you know, the, the sit down, sit down, sit down, um, <laughs> you know, I always found it a little awkward. But again, as strange as it is, I came out of this, uh, you know, couple weeks of listening, liking this song more and more, I probably more than I ever had. Loved it. Mm. I love, I love this, um, I love this live both sections translate extraordinarily well live. And obviously in Second Home by the Sea, you got the two drummer thing going and it just, it, it, it comes across very powerful to me. <laughs> it's a very complicated song to remember and play. I, I've only messed around acoustically and it uh, occurred to me that uh, there was a, a special with Phil doing an acoustic solo thing probably VH1 storytellers, whatever. Um, and and someone made reference to that, and they plucked out a couple chords and a couple notes, and Phil stopped very quickly and said, yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like you, you have to earn this tune. Like, it, it may not be prog, but this needs to be really tightly rehearsed. There's a lot changing. So I, I will make mention of a couple of lines in here that just always sort of resonated with me as a, as a young person. I love the scenes of unimportance, like photos in a frame. Mm. I believe I've mentioned in a really, really early episode um, when I was in my, my angsty teenage phase and I was writing deep, dark, heartfelt poetry. I had, uh, I had several that were titled scenes of great importance that was built oh, really? built specifically off this line. <laughs> wow! Oh, good, good on you. And um, I love the uh, the the way the way the song kind of pulls back in the as we relive our our lives and what we tell you. I I love the way that line is delivered. I I love the way everything kind of clears away for Phil to deliver that lyric, and I like the way that you know, sort of what that lyric conveys. Um, to me, it just, it, it resonates wonderfully. 
Um, Bingo. Hmm. And then... <laughs> okay, so that, that <laughs> ends side one on the vinyl. I mean, that could be the best side one of any Genesis album, it's, depending on how you want to wow, gauge it. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's just kind of solid end to end. It's, it's, yeah. it's tremendous. And I, I believe that's the way Tony references it. I forget what phrase he uses, but he says, you know, side one is, is super solid. And then you flip it over and you get sort of this eclectic mix of, of, I guess, character songs or whatever he calls it. And, and, it, mm -hmm. you know, side two is, is much more varied. Um, but I, I think it still works. And yeah, so the very, <laughs> the very, I don't even know. I I don't even know what to say about this. So okay, it, they swear illegal alien was just <laughs> meant to be supportive and jovial, and they had no racist or, or other aggressive tendencies. There, there was nothing malicious here, and and I have no reason to disbelieve them. And in 1983, maybe that was entirely true. In the lens of 2019. Oh my God. Wow. This, oh, jeez. <laughs> this is entirely inappropriate. <laughs> it, it's, it's beyond inappropriate. It is foundationally racist. It is a wash in unpleasant stereotypes. And the video is even worse. I, I mean, I watched the video just before we, we got on air here because I needed to refresh my memory. And I can see, yeah, I get it. It was, it was 1983 and, and people were wearing parachute pants and, and life was fun and, and whatever else. And, and they were trying to have a good time. But oh my God, I'm so uncomfortable watching it. It's terrible. The fact that I can yeah. still watch it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, I was willing to stomach the whole thing during this exercise until it gets to the breakdown. And then you've got the steel drums or whatnot yes. in the middle. And I really felt so uncomfortable when that hit. Ken, I, you know, I, when I was watching the video just before this and they got to that breakdown, I thought of you specifically because throughout, and I think it was mostly in, in the Rush episodes, but, but you have always been very sensitive to call out, um, what do we call it? Cultural misappropriation. Sure. You know, and, yeah. and, and so here you've already got, you know, this this song that has all these stereotypes, and then you you start pulling in the musical stereotypes on top of it, and it's that was bad. It's too yeah. much. It's yeah. too much. Yep, yep. It, it's a kind of thing where a band I could see <laughs> them doing it and having it as a a private cassette that they float around. <laughs> It's bad, man. And um, I, I, I think it, I think it gets to a point where, <laughs> oh my goodness, it, 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 this should have been an inside joke. Yeah, yeah. I. And how on earth did this make it to regular radio play? Was it just just it that? It was 1983, man. I'm, I'm. So, is it, are you saying in 1983 it was okay to be racist against Mexicans? That was culturally acceptable. 
I don't... Okay, I was all of 13, so, you know, obviously I wasn't, I wasn't that socially aware. My thinking was, and I'm not saying it's right, but my thinking was the the cultural understanding at the time was much less advanced or sophisticated than it is today. I'm not saying it was right, but I'm saying it was... I don't know what what word am I looking for? It was accepted. It was normalized. It wasn't. It wasn't I'm recognized as being as a, terrible as it is. The vibe I feel is Keystone Cops. There's kind of like, a, yeah, this is law and order. Yeah, this is rough. Yeah, it's real people and real lives. But it seemed like everything would work out. And, you know, folks would be fine whether they were in South America or whether they were in the USA. And they'd get jobs and they'd be safe and they'd be fine. And maybe some people would stay here and some people would be caught. But nobody died. No babies got separated from their parents. They didn't have these long-term detention centers. And they certainly didn't have ICE. Right. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago... This vi this song in this video probably would have been less uncomfortable than it is now, but again, we're in 2019. You can't get away from this issue, whichever side you wind up on. And I just find this to be. I, and I made the comment when we started when we started this Genesis segment that I was kind of dreading getting here, and it's. Now that we're here, it's worse than I imagined it was going to wow. be. Wow. I noticed that he's also, Phil is holding, instead of maracas. Pickles. Or any kind of shit. He's, he's uh Cucumbers, which yeah. I think is actually a big middle finger to Marillion. Because at the time, <laughs> uh, script for just <laughs> oh, was out. Geez. And Garden Party. And I think he's basically like, fuck you. <sighs> we're Genesis. You know? That's kind of what he's saying there. I, <laughs> you're funny, but but no. <laughs> oh man! No, if I'm, there's any know, I, rucking and fucking going on, I don't think. <laughs> listen, I don't think Phil understood. <laughs> so to me, the the most annoying thing about this is that it's 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 just a terrible '80s pop song. That's what's offensive to me about it. Um, it, it this is just for me, and I'm not. I'm not buying it. And when I listen to this now, I'm like, oh my god! I would that you could throw you could this could you could throw this on a Men at Work album. You could throw this on any any '80s album. I prefer to listen to to Men at Work. Um, well, you could say that Men at Work were were equally as bizarre in their treatment of Aborigines, but let's right. the Vegemite <laughs> sandwich. You could be right, but they're okay. from there Wait. at least. They are from Australia, right? You guys, no. did did you practice this? Did, <laughs> did you know what just showed up in my email? I swear to God. So I I was I was remiss in reaching out to friend of the palaver, uh, Dan Sherman, for uh, oh. his Genesis review. Okay. So I reached out to him today. He he literally I just opened it, and I'm scanning around to see how we want to deal with this topic. And I read the following. I am not shitting you. I just put my eye on it. 
Illegal Alien sounds too similar to Men at Work's Down Under to be that original. <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. <sighs> Wait, so, though Genesis' intention was not to copy Men at Work in any way, it is for... Um, the reason that Down Under was such a huge hit that Ill Illegal Alien appears unoriginal, though it is the most entertaining cut. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, I mean, it, in, in 1983, no. it wasn't even registering on anyone's radar. Um, yeah, I mean, if you how really get... If you, wanna, if you want to stretch it, right, what's depicted in this video is... It, and, and albeit it's it, it's filled with whimsy, as the song is, and it and it's uh, it, it's it's maybe not depicted in the way that that you know is is anywhere near reality, but it's you know at the heart of it it's the plight of people who want to go to a better place and it's very difficult to do so, right, and. And that's the view that Tony Banks would have you take, where ultimately, as humans, they were sensitive to this issue. It just doesn't come across in the final draft. Yeah, you're you're right, and and I, I I guess that's my point is that you know in there, yes, when they when they're all done with making it, you know, kind of tongue in cheek and fun and and all of that, it 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 comes off a little bit as a you know doesn't doesn't really hold true, but. You know, one one thing is for certain. Whether it's 1993 or 83 or 2019, it really is no fun being an illegal alien. Okay, I'll grant you that. Thank and by the way, fun and alien is not really a rhyme. <sighs> I believe they call that a slant rhyme. All right, can we yeah. move on because I'm I feel like I need I, a shower. I think overall, it's I, just it's a thumbs down overall for uh, for illegal alien. Right? I, I, I can't comment anymore without reporting to my boss, George Soros. So, that's so what I <laughs> taking it all too hard is a, is a very interesting song. It's, it, it's one of those songs where, again, as I'm sitting here thinking about this album and I think about taking it all too hard, I'm kind of like, I want to sort of check out. But, I, you know, <laughs> while it, it's ballady, I think it's, it's a lot stronger than... Than I always remember it being. It got a hell of a lot of radio play, and his vocal delivery is just magic. And uh, isn't this? Uh, I, I said that uh, Tony had peak uh, electric piano a couple albums ago, but damn, he's still he's still going at it. I, and, and it's funny, Ken. I've got a note down here that the uh, the verse vocal line is in all capital letters, great with a couple exclamation points. Mm. So I'm I'm right there with you. He's high in his range, and he's it, it's amazing how shouty Phil can be in a love song. Yeah, but and and yeah. here again, I I still think there's there's that sincerity here, and and maybe what what we have is not only is it sincere, right? It doesn't have. Oh God, should I be a total dickhead and say the the whiny narcissistic aspect of um of a misunderstanding or please don't ask you know it's it's much more 
sort of even keeled accepting of you know whatever the situation is and it's it's present but it's still very sincere right mm. you know th mm. there's there's i don't know just the way that these songs are presented they're they're really not too far in any one direction and it it, it really works yeah it's got a good pace to it for what it is I agree with everything you're saying. It, it's it, it, for some reason it's not a highlight for me. I think it's possibly because you know. Well, you know, I'll just be honest. For for me, the the um, some of these tracks don't stand the test of time. I will tell you that taking it all too hard and for me, it's going to get better. Do stand the test of time, mm. but they're kind of wedged in between all of these other songs. You know, illegal alien and just a job to do, which are just like, well, you know, just like I'm not into those tunes. I just so sometimes this one just kind of gets lost in the sauce a little bit. I think for me when I'm when I'm listening to the whole album, but I agree with you, Ken. Like, you know, it stands it stands on its own, and and there is a little bit of the screaming of Phil Collins that that you know at this point in time of the album, I'm, I I think I do kind of get a little bit of fatigue. Like I'm tired of hearing him screaming. And um, I'm tired of the electronic drums. Well, so. how about uh, I, I posited earlier that you know they they were really bolstering their pop songs with good bridges, and mm -hmm. I think in this one the old days are gone and they're better left alone. But I still miss you. I keep it to myself. I think it's a fantastic bridge mm -hmm. that saves an otherwise monotonous song. Yeah, yeah. You know, Paul, you, you mentioned fatigue. One of the things that I was going to mention about this album is I think it's a wonderfully tight and brisk-moving 45-minute, you know, set that is yeah. really spectacular. But you know, perhaps you see it a little differently. I, I think it's just the annoyance of Illegal Alien just because <laughs> it really um, wear at me. And um and and while this one is great, it still has that. Again, I think it's it's it has a lot to do with Phil's voice, the way it's produced, the way he's screaming. It just kind of, you know, it rolls into the 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 next track, which is like really screamy and just kind of. Yeah. I thought it was cool a long time ago, but just I don't anymore. And um and, and that's I, and I. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that's fascinating because I, I, I still find myself getting kind of excited about just a job to do. I don't know if I like it quite as much as I did when I was a teenager, but it, you know, here again, I, I, I think it's a good example. It, it it's maybe an example of you know a a, a raging fucking baseline. What? <laughs> That's that's, that's my the, that's my second that, that is true, Ken. I've been waiting an hour to talk about this one. <laughs> I was I was going to say it's a contemporary example of a Genesis Saga song, where they they have a specific story that they want to tell you, and they sort of immerse you in in that uh, environment and communicate that very well. But yes, my second note is a killer fucking baseline. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I can just feel the pick on the string, and the oh man, that 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 it's 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 it 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 might be tighter than no reply at all. It, it's it's just mm. so groovy tight. 
and it's it's kind of a little busy from the get-go. It's like mm-hmm. he's not fucking around. He's like, this is and like so often Rutherford waits until three minutes. Then he's allowed to play the bass. <laughs> this is not that song. <laughs> he is in it to win it. Well, and, and we've talked about that before. Like, you know, Mike Mike can be extraordinarily low key, but when he wants to bring it, especially on the bass, he is going to bring it. And it's 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 so liberating and wonderful when he decides to mm. do that. And, and I guess it's a and and this is one of the things I've always been fascinated with about Mike Rutherford and why Mike Rutherford is is probably the one member of Genesis I want to talk to. Besides the fact, if you guys when you watch the interviews, he has tremendous eyebrow control. I mean, the guy can move his <laughs> eyebrows in just tremendous ways. He's um, expressive. Yeah, I but, like his interviews. But but the fact that he has the ability to shred your face off, and yet he oftentimes chooses to not do that, is so just interesting to me. I, I, I you know, we, we've come across a lot of musicians who are very full of themselves and, and can't possibly fathom taking a back seat ever and yeah and mike mike can do either or and and he he's happy to do both and i just find that fascinating well this is his album it's almost like phil's hands are tied between the lindrum and the simmons like now is mike's opportunity and he doesn't abuse it he just very elegantly steps in when he needs to it's fucking perfect (laughs) <laughs> it, he has the um there's that little guitar line that's kind of counteracting the bass riffs too which is yeah i think it's genius it's yeah yeah, yeah. and it's funny because yeah yeah you got a three um textured interaction in your composition and tony's got that real buzzy synth sound that fills in like the right channel and then the the, yeah. the strat the strat sound is in the left channel and the bass kind of like melds them together. It, it, yeah. it, it's a cauldron of, of, of gorgeous uh, potion. It's wonderful. Yeah. You're talking about Mike Rutherford's restraint. You know, I didn't watch the whole making of the Mama album video, but was there that moment where they were like, you know, come on, Mike, we need you to, we need you to open up a little bit and cut loose on that. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, the, the parts that I do remember, and I, I honestly, I haven't watched the whole thing. I think I've watched about half of it at this point. Although I will say, um, I'd found it originally on YouTube, but it, it, there is a copy or a, a, a chapter on my Mama Tour DVD that has this as well. So I can watch it easily anytime I want. Mm. But I mean, the, the parts that I have gotten through, uh, Mike's not really doing much of anything. I, I mean, I wouldn't even say he's, he's wanking around. He's, he's noodling. If anything, mm. it's, it's mm. quite, uh, quite the thing. Well- this has been fantastic because now, now for sure, I know that that I just can't stand Phil Collins' voice in this in this t- tune. I'm touched, tired of him screaming at me. Really? And so, so uh, yeah. This yeah. is kind of like the uh, uh, the long lost brother of mine equivalent of uh, Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> See, I, I don't react. I don't react to Phil like that at all. I think, I, I think his his vocal delivery brings a certain sense of urgency. I like the way the the story is kind of turned on its head um, by the time it's all said and done. Okay, thumbs up from the palaver. Thumbs up <laughs> from the palaver. Now it it seems like perhaps we're going to have another difference of opinion here on the next song. Um, I, I I have the impression I have no research to back this up, but I have the impression that Silver Rainbow is generally ignored by most everyone. But I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for it. I this got FM radio play more than it did. Uh, yeah, because I didn't have this album, and yet I knew the tunes, and I had captured many of these on like cassette off of the radio, and uh, I had no idea that Silver Rainbow was about sex. I had no idea. Well, and and, and at an age where I could have used the information, frankly, <laughs> I don't know that there's information that's useful here for <laughs> people of that age. Um, you know, and, and honestly, can I can't say that I knew that it was uh, necessarily about sex. I mean, you, you sort of get that impression, and Phil seems to like to, you know, um, sort of work that in. Ha 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 ha. But you know. At, on the face of it, these lyrics are so, again, on the face of it, they're so wonderfully incomprehensible that you're, you're, you're wondering if Phil has spent some time, you know, meditating with John Anderson at this point, because you're like, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's not even close to John Anderson. It, it's just, it's just, uh, you don't know if you're coming or going. You're so into it. You don't know who walks in the room. It's 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 kind of crystal clear if you just just stayed for a while. In my opinion, there's some cool stuff in this in this song. And uh, you know, I, like I, I've I've said before, when the when the electronic drums come in, I'm like, okay, enough already. A little bit. That's kind of my reaction that I'm having now. But there are certain there are certain songs and certain melodies that they they become almost like an obsessive rumination of music right where once you start down the road it just circles and circles and you just cannot stop it from happening and right around like the 140 mark of this where you get mm. into the dun 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 right it just beyond the silver uh, it, doesn't it, work it for just, you. It just doesn't work for me, and I feel like I'm just <laughs> stuck in that rut. It's like we just keep going back to it and back to it, and it's like I like the other stuff that was happening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's I think go that's back really, over there. Yeah, it's kind of what drags <laughs> me down. Okay, but you, yeah, okay. So you speak to the machinations of a kind of a, a songwriting stuck where yeah, the inertia is going in this direction, but that's not necessarily what the song needs. Yeah, and it comes out of yeah, it sort of comes out of nowhere to me. Like whatever that whatever that keyboard sound, the dun dun dun, just it's almost like the silly horns in just a job to do, right? You know, horns are great. Yeah, but you know, it's, you wait until track seven to put them in, and you're like, "Whoa, where did those guys come from?" <laughs> <laughs> what happened? So, 
So, what, so for, for me, just a little, just some inconsistencies that that kind of drive me crazy at this point. And maybe I'm being too picky. Maybe I'm just being an asshole. Um, but you know, when I think about how incredible, like the first side of this album is, if you will, you know, you know these these are falling short for me, I guess, in the long run. Yeah, and I, I don't know that that's an invalid point. Certainly, I mean, because the first the first side is is tremendous. I, I will say there's there's a great little bit in the interview with Tony about the intro here, where again he's talking about you know. I, I liken it to taking his his uh, sampling synthesizer out of the box and figuring out how it works. And he's he talks about, you know, I, Ken, maybe you remember, he talks about um, using a, a cello sample and he ends mm-hmm. up just hitting, you know, f- he makes a, a four-note chord and winds up, you know, getting these these beautiful harmonies sort of coming in and out of each other that he apparently didn't expect at all. I don't know what the setup was or anything else, but I mean, you could, you could see even, even at the time of the interview, he, he had fond memories of this sort of moment of discovery of how this new toy worked. And it was kind of cool. Probably uh, eight, nine years, whatever it was when I was finally in college and had access to an insonic synthesizer. I did experience that where, Oh my God, this keyboard lets me sample something and then I'm going to abuse the sample in every way possible. <laughs> and you, and you realize how hard it is to make a string section or a cello or whatever it was. And that, that, that was where Tony was at in 1983. Oh, I'm going to mm. sample some strings and, and play strings. And you're like, crap, the physics of it just mathematically doesn't work out to sound like a cello. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, if it sounds beautiful, I'll still use it because, damn, that's cool. And, and, and yeah, so and and that's that's the cool thing about Genesis is that you know at certainly in this stage, and I can't, I, I don't know that I can speak to them maybe before this, but you know again, I think from from 1980 onward, these guys were looking for new toys and new things to to utilize and and to expand what they were doing. And, you know, they were, they were doing the same thing with their, their light show at this point. I just think it's cool. Yeah. Mm, I'm glad you said light show. Um, during home by the sea, I can't listen to that without envisioning concert lighting, particularly in, uh, Mm. part two, but, uh, in much of this album, it's just so arena based. And then the, uh, the album finishes up with, it's going to get better, which, which which perfectly describes the next album. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a baiting line, Paul? Wow. <laughs> I I have that the uh, that this song is almost anthemic. This again is one of those songs where I always remember it perhaps less favorably than when I listen to it, and it comes on and I'm like, yeah, okay, it. It, it's kind of a slow way to end the album, but I don't know that it's inappropriate either. It doesn't, you know, and if you're if you're playing like the CD and it loops back in, it actually feeds pretty well right back into the uh, to the beginning of Mama. So nice, nice. Well, I can tell you when it feeds into the first track of Invisible Touch, it's a little bit of a shocker. <laughs> 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 well, you know, one shouldn't just 
you know, jump right into Invisible Touch unknowingly. For sure. All right. Yeah. Well, can we Go throw ahead. them props for the positivity? Uh, it's going to get better. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Ooh. after starting with Mama and that's all and Home by the Sea, you know. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, so the, here's the difference between, you know, young Paul and grown up Paul. You, you know, like I probably overlooked this song young when I was younger because I was really into the screaming Phil Collins and, and you know, all of the other stuff that was happening. But when, you know, when this song starts and, you know, the drums bust in and the, the, the keyboard bass is going and it's just and then Phil comes in with Reach Out and he's he's it's like all of a sudden he's like, you know what, I'm going to sing this song. Like I was singing, and then there were three. Like I'm gonna go back to that Phil Collins, mm. and it is so refreshing to hear him in that soft falsetto, and and, and sing this song. And you're right, Ken. It's it's hopeful, yet it's dark. And you know, I had a, a revelation. You know, listening through that that you know I I had missed for so long. The, the, at the end of the song, right? He he goes through this. Um, he says, "If it's going to get better, it starts with a feeling. If it's going to get better, it's, it's going to take time. If it's going to get better, we've got to start now." And I, and that melody is the melody that I brought up when we were talking about Duke, when we talked about the end of Guide Vocal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and the melody that that perpetuates all the way through and shows up again in in we in we can't dance in that album and he sings the melody and um i'm sorry it's not the end of guide vocal it's actually the end of i can't remember what it's the end of it's probably got is it guide vocal it's the Sing same it. melody that that happens at the end of duchess just before guide vocal and when he gets through the bridge and then he gets to, you know, because you know, and I know it's time for a change. The electric piano comes in yeah. and I swear to you, you could have spliced the track right off of Duke and in, into this spot. And it is just, and it's not a big, it's, it's, it's so wonderful. Cause it's not this big bombastic. It's time for a change and boom, you know, we're going to hit you with this big, it's like, it's, we, you know, I know it's time for a change and there's just kind of this release of okay it's it's just kind of you kind of exhale relax and you just know that it's going to get better right and the melody comes through and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and then it, it kind of fades back into the the all of the cool uh synthy stuff that's happening at mm -hmm, the beginning mm -hmm, i just mm -hmm. think it's a fabulous fabulous way to to bring it together and this you know, this go around, this is my favorite song on the album. Wow. And, uh, and I just, it's uh, wow. wonderful. Yeah. Well, what Neo Prague album 11 years later is entirely dark in a concept album, but needs to end. <laughs> <laughs> anybody, anybody for bonus points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love, I absolutely love the live recording of that when, when Hogarth stops and he says, yeah, we were right in the, the end of the, we finished recording the album. We're like, Jesus, that's bleak. 
But, you know, again, I'll never, ever forget that in in 2013 because, yeah, it's bleak as shit when they when they close out that first set before they come back out for that. But, God, I didn't even care. It was so fucking good. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. Mm. All right. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Paul. It's your favorite song. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. So I did you guys. I know we've been on here longer than I even realized we were. I looked at the time and I'm like, really? <laughs> it's just another night at the Palaver. Just another night at the Palaver. Another couple hours. Did you um, <laughs> Did you want me to read through this thing of Dan's quickly and we can decide if we want to keep it in the episode or, yes. or deal with it yes. later? All right. So uh, this is from the Hawkeye View on November 23rd, 1983. Um, Genesis Lights Up Horizon by friend of the palaver, Dan Sherman. Mm. I like him throwing in the word horizon. It's got a nice historical wow, Genesis there you go. thing going there. Nice. Yeah. It, it may very well, it's actually the theater that they played at. Oh, okay. Oh, it just worked out. Not being an avid Genesis fan, attending their Friday, November 11 concert at the Rosemont Horizon was an unforgettable was an unforgettable experience for me. Surrounded by thousands of screaming fans, I was enveloped into a world of one of the most entrancing visual light shows I have ever seen. Genesis uses computerized rotating mini floodlights to their fullest extent, while other major concert attractions, such as Styx, Asia, and Journey, use them sparingly and only on special instances, Genesis' entire hydraulic lighting rig is full of the most efficient lights available on the market. These lights produce extremely rich, powerful hues and can change colors within a fraction of a second, unlike conventional floodlights that can only produce one color at a time. Completely controlled by computers at the mixing board, these versatile lights produce some highly original patterns that are almost never repeated throughout the entire three-hour show. Combined with two dry ice machines that makes a smokescreen thicker than a Los Angeles brush fire, the show as a whole is one of the most visually interesting and breathtaking spectacles in the rock music world. Nice. Regardless of how interesting their live show is, Genesis' new album simply titled Genesis is not nearly as interesting as the concert. Genesis... Oh. <laughs> Dan, Dan, had, in, Dan gave us the, uh, the disclaimer that at the time he was not a Genesis fan, so you know, take this for what it's worth. Um, Genesis' progressive rock background strikes again as they attempt to uncover new and imaginative ideas. Unfortunately, their new, quote, 80s style, end quote, makes this new album seem ordinary to other new records. We already covered um, the Illegal Alien comment. I'll just read it. Illegal Alien sounds too similar to Minute Works Down Under to be that original. Though Genesis' intention was not to copy Men at Work in any way, it is for the reason that Down Under was such a huge hit that Illegal Alien appears unoriginal, though it is the most entertaining cut. The album's single and opening track, Mama, is outrageously chaotic to the point of being completely useless. The song has no melody or structure of any kind. The synthesized background percussion is stylistically similar to vocalist percussionist Phil Collins' solo work, such as In the Air Tonight, I Don't Care Anymore, and Missed Again. Home by the Sea and Second Home by the Sea, together, 
the most innovative songs on the album are saved by the guitar and bass playing of Mike Rutherford before reaching almost certain destructive boredom. <laughs> <laughs> the best cuts on the album are That's All and It's Gonna Get Better. That's All has hey, a touch all right. of... <laughs> That's all has a touch of country western swing that is unlike any Genesis song I have ever heard. It's Gonna Get Better features a similar rich, flavorful background textures from virtuoso keyboardist Tony Banks that made Man on the Corner and the classic Follow You, Follow Me from And Then There Were Three excellent songs. Banks released an innovative solo album earlier this year that featured many other excellent musicians, including jazz drummer Steve Gadd. Hmm. The major fallacy in Genesis studio recording is that Banks, Rutherford, and Collins write and record the music themselves, but hire Chester Thompson and Daryl Sturmer to round out the band in live performances. While other trios, most notably Rush, The Police, Triumph, and even The Stray Cats and Zebra, can dimension their sound to suit a live atmosphere, Genesis continues to incorporate extra musicians to widen their concert sound. Though, oh, but who's behind the door? I had to say that. Though, though credited and sometimes spotlighted in concert, it is a shame that their talent is wasted only to highlight the live effect of the trio. At some points, Thompson appears to play Collins' percussion style better than Phil himself. Genesis Gee. has proved that their concerts make up for a generally poor performance on record. Watching the band perform the new songs live after listening to the album enhances the effect of the songs, but after seeing them live, the new album sounds like trash. <laughs> so, oh my goodness! So we're always wow. we're always looking for you know perspective in the the, the temporal context, and there we have it. Um, and, and 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 to be fair, we know from Dan's comments and and his submissions to us that he went on from this point to become uh, prog rock, you know, fan and aficionado and with a more breadth than this. The, 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 this this is just a school paper that shows his well, exactly, and and I think his, his evolution. And I think you know there there's a certain sort of. Um, presentation you're going for in that in that uh, in that situation. Now I will read Dan's email that went along with this, just to sort of put everything in perspective. Suffice to say, I didn't really like them at the time, and he's got a big smiley face emoji. It was a good three to four years into my love for Marillion before anyone got me to seriously listen to the back catalog. Now when I go to Setlist FM, I'm amazed at how many songs they played that I like now, but at the time I had no idea what was going on. In the cage? Are you kidding me? So right, right, mm. right. Yep. And in the cage, uh, as I learned at the concert uh, by the Genesis show covering the 1981 Abbey Tour, inspired that band to get together. They were just looking for an excuse to play Cage live. Wow! And that blew up into an entire studio. <laughs> So, um, Dan also in the same uh, issue has a review of the 90125 tour, which we can perhaps deal with at another time. But Oh, wow. So, huh. you know, uh, everything else aside, I, I think we, de we described this at the top of the episode. This album, I think, 
you know, stands the test of time fairly well. Does everything work? Maybe not quite as perfectly as we would have liked. Um, but I do think it's it's very, very good. I think, you know, Paul, and you said this, the, the first side is as good a side of vinyl as you're going to find. It's, it's certainly phenomenal. And, you know, we have, we as we also talked about, you know, popular music and, and progressive music is changing at this time. The, the 80s are having an influence. You have, you know, everyone talks about, you know, the, the impact, the impact of, of punk and, and what happened after that. You now have technology coming in. You have all of these, these other bands that are coming in on, on the pop scene that, you know, have a decidedly different spin. And it's interesting to me to see where these guys go. And again, Rutherford said this um, on the Abacab thing, you know, he, he personally didn't want to be playing the same types of music. And I think, you know, after the experiment that was Abacab, I'm happy that Genesis was able to sort of, you know, bring it back into focus a little bit and give us something that I think is is really spectacular. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, now, now that you've read Dan Sherman's uh, contribution to the palaver, um, <laughs> Joe, help me out here. When in in what Merlin episode did you read Merlin Star Wars? Oh, that was in the. F I think it was in the first one. <laughs> and that was an email from Tom. No, right? it was probably in the second one because I, I believe that came in somewhere. We'd have to go back and look at it, but it was somewhere around the the Brave AOS type time frame. Yeah. That, that we're so, we're, I mean, yeah, yeah. We, we stir shit up now and, and we create our little debates and whatnot. But back then, you know, we, we, we <laughs> it was no holds barred. We just had opinions and we expressed them. And uh, yeah, I love thinking about what, what Dan submitted in context to our uh, Merlian Star Wars. Yeah. And, and you know, we have to give uh, we have to give Dan credit because, you know, how many people are willing to. To, to drudge up something from that point in their life and, and share it with everyone. So, so Dan, thank you so much from the Blaver for being willing to, to share your thoughts at the time. I, I, you know, I, I love it. I think it's great. Here, here. And we, we were equally as nuts. That's cool. Yep. Anything else, gentlemen, to, uh, to put a pin in this one? The next one's even better. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. All right. So if that's if that's what we have, guys, I will thank you as always for spending your evening with me talking about a wonderful, wonderful record. And uh, look forward to continuing on and, and having a healthy conversation next episode. enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. Uh, please feel free, free to reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at Progpala on all of those, where you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. 
Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.